0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, chapters 7 and 8, from The Secret Adversary, by Agatha Christie. And now, chapter 7, The House in Soho. Whittington and his companion were walking at a good pace. Tommy started in pursuit at once, and was in time to see them turn the corner of the street. His vigorous strides soon enabled him to gain upon them, and by the time he, in his turn, reached the corner, the distance between them was sensibly lessened. The small Mayfair streets were comparatively deserted, and he judged it wise to content himself with keeping them in sight. The sport was a new one to him, though familiar with the technicalities from a course of novel reading, he had never before attempted to follow anyone, and it appeared to him at once that in actual practice the proceeding was fraught with difficulties. Supposing, for instance, that they should suddenly hail a taxi— "'In books, you simply leapt into another, "'promised the driver a sovereign, "'or its modern equivalent, and there you were. "'In actual fact, Tommy foresaw "'that it was extremely likely there would be no second taxi. "'Therefore, he would have to run. "'What happened in actual fact to a young man "'who ran incessantly and persistently "'through the London streets? "'In a main road, he might hope to create the illusion "'that he was merely running for a bus. "'But in these obscure, aristocratic byways, "'he could not but feel that an officious policeman "'might stop him to explain matters. "'At this juncture in his thoughts, "'a taxi with flag erect turned the corner of the street ahead. "'Tommy held his breath. "'Would they hail it? "'He drew a sigh of relief as they allowed it to pass unchallenged. "'Their course was a zigzag one, "'designed to bring them as quickly as possible to Oxford Street. "'When at length they turned into it, "'proceeding in an easterly direction, "'Tommy slightly increased his pace. "'Little by little he gained upon them.' "'On the crowded pavement there was little chance of his attracting their notice, "'and he was anxious, if possible, to catch a word or two of their conversation. "'In this he was completely foiled. "'They spoke low, and the din of the traffic drowned their voices effectually. "'Just before the Bond Street tube station they crossed the road. "'Tommy, unperceived, faithfully at their heels, and entered the big lions. "'There they went up to the first floor and sat at a small table in the window. "'It was late, and the place was thinning out.' Tommy took a seat at the table next to them, sitting directly behind Whittington in case of recognition. On the other hand, he had a full view of the second man and studied him attentively. He was fair, with a weak, unpleasant face, and Tommy put him down as being either a Russian or a Pole. He was probably about fifty years of age, his shoulders cringed a little as he talked, and his eyes, small and crafty, shifted unceasingly. Having already lunched heartily, Tommy contented himself with ordering a Welsh rarebit and a cup of coffee. Whittington ordered a substantial lunch for himself and his companion. Then, as the waitress withdrew, he moved his chair a little closer to the table, and began to talk earnestly in a low voice. The other man joined in. "'Listen as he would. Tommy could only catch a word here and there. But the gist of it seemed to be some directions or orders which the big man was impressing on his companion, and with which the latter seemed from time to time to disagree.' Whittington addressed the other as Boris. "'Tommy caught the word Ireland several times, also propaganda, but of Jane Finn there was no mention. Suddenly, in a lull in the clatter of the room, he caught one phrase entire. Whittington was speaking. "'Ah, but you don't know Flossie. She's a marvel. An archbishop would swear she was his own mother. She gets the voice right every time, and that's really the principal thing.' "'Tommy did not hear Boris's reply,' "'but in response to it, Whittington said something that sounded like, "'Of course, only in an emergency. "'Then he lost the thread again. "'But presently the phrases became distinct again, "'whether because the other two had insensibly raised their voices "'or because Tommy's ears were getting more tuned, "'He could not tell. "'But two words certainly had a most stimulated effect upon the listener. "'They were uttered by Boris, and they were, "'Mr. Brown.' "'Whittington seemed to remonstrate with him, "'but he merely laughed.' "'Why not, my friend? "'It is a name most respectable, most common. "'Did he not choose it for that reason? "'Ah, I should like to meet him, Mr. Brown.' There was a steely ring in Whittington's voice as he replied. "'Who knows? "'You may have met him already.' "'Bah!' retorted the other. "'That's children's talk, a fable for the police. "'Do you know what I say to myself sometimes? "'That he is a fable invented by the inner ring, "'a bogey to frighten us with.' "'It might be so. "'And it might not. "'I wonder. "'Or is it indeed true that he is with us "'and amongst us, unknown to all "'but a chosen few? "'If so, he keeps his secret well. "'And the idea is a good one. "'Yes, we never know. "'We look at each other. "'One of us is Mr. Brown. "'Which? "'He commands, but also he serves, "'among us, in the midst of us, "'and no one knows which he is. With an effort, the Russian shook off the vagary of his fancy. He looked at his watch. "'Yes,' said Whittington. "'We might as well go.' He called the waitress and asked for his bill. Tommy did likewise, and a few moments later was following the two men down the stairs. Outside, Whittington hailed a taxi and directed the driver to go to Waterloo. Taxis were plentiful here, and before Whittington's had driven off, another was drawing up to the curb in obedience to Tommy's peremptory hand." "'Follow that other taxi,' directed the young man. "'Don't lose it.' The elderly chauffeur showed no interest. He merely grunted and jerked down his flag. The drive was uneventful. Tommy's taxi came to rest at the departure platform just after Whittington's. Tommy was behind him at the booking office. He took a first-class single ticket to Bournemouth. Tommy did the same. As he emerged, Boris remarked, glancing up at the clock. "'You're early. You have nearly half an hour.' "'Boris's words had aroused a new train of thought in Tommy's mind. "'Clearly Whittington was making the journey alone, "'while the other remained in London. "'Therefore he was left with a choice as to which he would follow. "'Obviously he could not follow both of them unless... "'Unless... "'Like Boris, he glanced up at the clock "'and then to the announcement board of the trains. "'The Bournemouth train left at 3.30. "'It was now ten past. "'Whittington and Boris were walking up and down by the bookstall.' He gave one doubtful look at them, then hurried into an adjacent telephone box. He dared not waste time in trying to get hold of Tuppence. In all probability, she was still in the neighborhood of South Audley Mansions. But there remained another ally. He rang up the Ritz and asked for Julius Hersheimer. There was a click and a buzz. Oh, if only the young American was in his room! There was another click, and then— Hello? In unmistakable accents came over the wire. Is that you, Hersheimer? "'Hersford speaking. I'm at Waterloo. "'I followed Whittington and another man here. "'No time to explain. "'Whittington's off to Bournemouth by the 3.30. "'Can you get there by then?' "'The reply was reassuring. "'Sure, I'll hustle.' "'The telephone rang off. "'Tommy put back the receiver with a sigh of relief. "'His opinion of Julius's power of hustling was high. "'He felt instinctively that the American would arrive in time. "'Whittington and Boris were still where he had left them.' If Boris remained to see his friend off, all was well. Then Tommy fingered his pocket thoughtfully, in spite of the carte Blanche assured to him he had not yet acquired the habit of going about with any considerable sum of money on him. The taking of the first-class ticket to Bournemouth had left him with only a few shillings in his pocket. It was to be hoped that Julius would arrive better, provided in the meantime. the minutes were creeping by three fifteen three twenty three twenty five three twenty seven "'Supposing Julius did not get there in time?' three twenty-nine. "'Doors were banging. "'Tommy felt cold waves of despair pass over him. "'Then a hand fell on his shoulder. "'Here I am, son. "'Your British traffic beats description. "'Put me wise to the crooks right away.' "'That's Whittington. "'There, getting in now. "'That big dark man. "'The other is the foreign chap he's talking to. "'I'm on to them. "'Which of the two is my bird?' "'Tommy had thought out this question.' "'Got any money with you?' "'Julius shook his head, and Tommy's face fell. "'I guess I haven't more than three or four hundred dollars with me at the moment,' explained the American. Tommy gave a faint whoop of relief. "'Oh, Lord, you millionaires! You don't talk the same language. Climb aboard the lugger. Here's your ticket. Whittington's your man.' "'I'm after him,' said Julius darkly. The train was just starting as he swung himself aboard. "'So long, Tommy.' The train slid out of the station." Tommy drew a deep breath. The man Boris was coming along the platform towards him. Tommy allowed him to pass and then took up the chase once more. From Waterloo, Boris took the tube as far as Piccadilly Circus. Then he walked up Shaftesbury Avenue, finally turning off into the maze of mean streets round Soho. Tommy followed him at a judicious distance. They reached at length a small, dilapidated square. The houses there had a sinister air in the midst of their dirt and decay. Boris looked round. "'and Tommy drew back into the shelter of a friendly porch. "'The place was almost deserted. "'It was a cul-de-sac, and consequently no traffic passed that way. "'The stealthy way the other had looked round "'stimulated Tommy's imagination. "'From the shelter of the doorway he watched him go up the steps "'of a particularly evil-looking house "'and rap sharply, with a peculiar rhythm, on the door. "'It was opened promptly. "'He said a word or two to the doorkeeper, then passed inside.' And the door was shut to again. It was at this juncture that Tommy lost his head. What he ought to have done, what any sane man would have done, was to remain patiently where he was and wait for his man to come out again. What he did do was entirely foreign to the sober common sense which was, as a rule, his leading characteristic. Something, as he expressed it, seemed to snap in his brain. Without a moment's pause for reflection, he, too, went up the steps and reproduced, as far as he was able, the peculiar knock. The door swung open with the same promptness as before. A villainous-faced man with close-cropped hair stood in the doorway. "'Well?' he grunted. It was at that moment that the full realization of his folly began to come home to Tommy, but he dared not hesitate. He seized at the first words that came into his mind. "'Mr. Brown?' he said. To his surprise, the man stood aside. "'Upstairs,' he said jerking his thumb over his shoulder. Second door on your left. We'll return with Chapter 8 right after these sponsor messages. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. And now, Chapter 8 of The Secret Adversary by Agatha Christie. Chapter 8. The Adventures of Tommy. Taken aback though he was by the man's words, Tommy did not hesitate. If audacity had successfully carried him so far, it was to be hoped it would carry him yet farther. He quietly passed into the house and mounted the ramshackle staircase. Everything in the house was filthy beyond words. The grimy paper of a pattern now indistinguishable hung in loose festoons from the wall, In every angle was a gray mass of cobweb. Tommy proceeded leisurely. By the time he reached the bend of the staircase, he had heard the man below disappear into a back room. Clearly no suspicion attached to him as yet. To come to the house and ask for Mr. Brown appeared indeed to be a reasonable and natural proceeding. At the top of the stairs, Tommy halted to consider his next move. In front of him ran a narrow passage, with doors opening on either side of it. "'From the one nearest him on the left came a low murmur of voices. "'It was this room which he had been directed to enter, "'but what held his glance fascinated was a small recess immediately on his right, "'half concealed by a torn velvet curtain. "'It was directly opposite the left-handed door, and, owing to its angle, "'it also commanded a good view of the upper part of the staircase. "'As a hiding-place for one, or, at a pinch, two men, it was ideal, "'being about two feet deep and three feet wide.' It attracted Tommy mightily. He thought things over in his usual slow and steady way, deciding that the mention of Mr. Brown was not a request for an individual, but in all probability a password used by the gang. His lucky use of it had gained him admission. So far he had aroused no suspicion, but he must decide quickly on his next step. Suppose he were boldly to enter the room on the left of the passage. Would the mere fact of his having been admitted to the house be sufficient?' Perhaps a further password would be required, or at any rate, some proof of identity. The doorkeeper clearly did not know all the members of the gang by sight, but it might be different upstairs. On the whole, it seemed to him that luck had served him very well so far, but that there was such a thing as trusting it too far. To enter that room was a colossal risk. He could not hope to sustain his part indefinitely. Sooner or later, he was almost bound to betray himself, and then he would have thrown away a vital chance in mere foolhardiness. A repetition of the signal knock sounded on the door below, and Tommy, his mind made up, slipped quickly into the recess, and cautiously drew the curtain further across so that it shielded him completely from sight. There were several rents and slits in the ancient material which afforded him a good view. He would watch events, and any time he chose he could, after all, join the assembly, modeling his behavior on that of the new arrival. "'The man who came up the staircase with a furtive, soft-footed tread "'was quite unknown to Tommy. "'He was obviously of the very dregs of society. "'The low beetling brows and the criminal jaw, "'the bestiality of the whole countenance were new to the young man, "'though he was a type that Scotland Yard would have recognized at a glance. "'The man passed the recess, breathing heavily as he went. "'He stopped at the door opposite and gave a repetition of the signal knock. "'A voice inside called out something,' and the man opened the door and passed in, affording Tommy a momentary glimpse of the room inside. He thought there must be about four or five people seated round a long table that took up most of the space, but his attention was caught and held by a tall man with close-cropped hair and a short, pointed, naval looking beard, who sat at the head of the table with papers in front of him. As the newcomer entered, he glanced up, and with a correct but curiously precise enunciation, which attracted Tommy's notice, he asked, "'Your number, comrade?' Fourteen, governor,' replied the other, hoarsely. "'Correct.' The door shut again. "'If that isn't a hun, I'm a Dutchman,' said Tommy to himself. "'And running the show darn systematically, too, as they always do. "'Lucky I didn't roll in. "'I'd have given the wrong number, and there would have been the deuce to pay. "'No, this is the right place for me. "'Ah, there's another knock.' This visitor proved to be of an entirely different type to the last. Tommy recognized in him an Irish sinfainer, Certainly Mr. Brown's organization was a far-reaching concern. The common criminal, the well-bred Irish gentleman, the pale Russian, and the efficient German master of the ceremonies. Truly a strange and sinister gathering. Who was this man who held in his finger these curiously variegated links of an unknown chain? In this case, the procedure was exactly the same. The signal knock? the demand for a number, and the reply, correct. Two knocks followed in quick succession on the door below. The first man was quite unknown to Tommy, who put him down as a city clerk. A quiet, intelligent-looking man, rather shabbily dressed. The second was of the working classes, and his face was vaguely familiar to the young man. Three minutes later came another, a man of commanding appearance, exquisitely dressed, and evidently well-born. His face, again, was not unknown to the watcher, though he could not for the moment put a name on it. After his arrival there was a long wait. In fact, Tommy concluded that the gathering was now complete, and was just cautiously creeping out from his hiding place when another knock sent him scuttling back to cover. This last comer came up the stairs so quietly that he was almost abreast of Tommy before the young man had realized his presence. He was a small man, very pale, with a gentle, almost womanish air, The angle of his cheekbones hinted at his Slavonic ancestry, otherwise there was nothing to indicate his nationality. As he passed the recess, he turned his head slowly. The strange light eyes seemed to burn through the curtain. Tommy could hardly believe that the man did not know he was there, and in spite of himself he shivered. He was no more fanciful than the majority of young Englishmen, but he could not rid himself of the impression that some unusually potent force emanated from the man. The creature reminded him of a venomous snake, A moment later, his impression was proved correct. The newcomer knocked on the door as all had done, but his reception was very different. The bearded man rose to his feet, and all the others followed suit. The German came forward and shook hands. His heels clicked together. "'We are honored,' he said. "'We are greatly honored. I much feared that it would be impossible.' The other answered in a low voice that had kind of a hiss in it. "'There were difficulties. It will not be possible again, I fear.' but the one meeting is essential, to define my policy. I can do nothing without Mr. Brown. He is here?' The change in the German's voice was audible as he replied with a slight hesitation. "'We have received the message. It's impossible for him to be present in person.' He stopped, giving a curious impression of having left the sentence unfinished. A very slow smile overspread the face of the other. He looked round at a circle of uneasy faces. "'Ah, I understand. I have read of his methods.' He works in the dark and trusts no one. But all the same, it is possible that he is among us now. He looked round him again, and again that expression of fear swept over the group. Each man seemed eyeing his neighbor doubtfully. The Russian tapped his cheek. So be it. Let us proceed. The German seemed to pull himself together. He indicated the place he had been occupying at the head of the table. The Russian demurred, but the other insisted. It is the only possible place, he said, "'For number one. "'Perhaps number fourteen will shut the door.' "'In another moment, "'Tommy was once more confronting bare wooden panels, "'and the voices within had sunk once more "'to a mere indistinguishable murmur. "'Tommy became restive. "'The conversation he had overheard "'had stimulated his curiosity. "'He felt that, by hook or by crook, "'he must hear more. "'There was no sound from below, "'and it did not seem likely "'that the doorkeeper would come upstairs.' After listening intently for a minute or two, he put his head round the curtain. The passage was deserted. Tommy bent down and removed his shoes. Then, leaving them behind the curtain, he walked gingerly out on his stocking feet, and kneeling down by the closed door, he laid his ear cautiously to the crack. To his intense annoyance, he could distinguish little more, just a chance word here and there if a voice was raised, which merely served to whet his curiosity still further. He eyed the handle of the door tentatively. Could he turn it by degrees so gently and imperceptibly that those in the room would notice nothing? He decided that with great care it could be done. Very slowly, a fraction of an inch at a time, he moved it round, holding his breath in his excessive care. A little more, a little more still. Would it never be finished? Ah! At last it would turn no farther. He stayed so for a minute or two, then drew a deep breath, and pressed it ever so slightly inward. The door did not budge. Tommy was annoyed. If he had to use too much voice, it would almost certainly creak. He waited until the voices rose a little. Then he tried again. Still nothing happened. He increased the pressure. Had the beastly thing stuck? Finally, in desperation, he pushed with all his might. But the door remained firm, and at last the truth dawned upon him. It was locked or bolted on the inside. For a moment or two, Tommy's indignation got the better of him. Well, I'm damned, he said to himself. What a dirty trick! As his indignation cooled, he prepared to face the situation. Clearly, the first thing to be done was to restore the handle to its original position. If he let it go suddenly, the men inside would be almost certain to notice it. So, with the same infinite pains, he reversed his former tactics. All went well, and with a sigh of relief, the young man rose to his feet. There was a certain bulldog tenacity about Tommy that made him slow to admit defeat. Checkmated for the moment. He was far from abandoning the conflict. He still intended to hear what was going on in the locked room. As one plan had failed, he must hunt about for another. He looked round him. A little farther along the passage on the left was a second door. He slipped silently along to it. He listened for a moment or two, then tried the handle. It yielded, and he slipped inside. The room, which was untenanted, was furnished as a bedroom. Like everything else in the house, the furniture was falling to pieces, and the dirt was, if anything, more abundant. But what interested Tommy was the thing he had hoped to find, a communicating door between the two rooms, up on the left by the window. Carefully closing the door into the passage behind him, he stepped across to the other and examined it closely. The bolt was shot across it, it was very rusty, and it had clearly not been used for some time. By gently wriggling it to and fro, Tommy managed to draw it back without making too much noise. Then he repeated his former maneuvers with the handle, this time with complete success. The door swung open, a crack, a mere fraction, but enough for Tommy to hear what went on. There was a velvet portier on the inside of this door which prevented him from seeing, but he was able to recognize the voices with a reasonable amount of accuracy." "'The Sin was speaking. "'His rich Irish voice was unmistakable. "'That's all very well, "'but more money is essential. "'No money, no results.' "'Another voice which Tommy rather thought "'was that of Boris, replied, "'Will you guarantee that there are results?' "'In a month from now, Sooner or later as you wish, "'I will guarantee you such a reign of terror in Ireland "'as will shake the British Empire to its foundations.' "'There was a pause.' "'and then came the soft, sibilant accents of number one. "'Good. You shall have the money, Boris. "'You will see to that.' "'Boris asked a question. "'Be the Irish-Americans and Mr. Potter as usual?' "'I guess that'll be all right,' said a new voice, "'with a transatlantic intonation. "'Though I'd like to point out, here and now, "'that things are getting a mite difficult. "'There's not the sympathy there was, "'and a growing disposition to let the Irish settle their own affairs "'without interference from America.' Tommy felt that Boris had shrugged his shoulders as he answered. "'Does that matter, since the money only nominally comes from the States?' "'The chief difficulty is the landing of the ammunition,' said the Sinfiner, The "'The money's conveyed in easily enough, thanks to our colleague here.' Another voice, which Tommy fancied was that of the tall, commanding-looking man whose face had seemed familiar to him, said, "'Think of the feelings of Belfast if they could hear you.' "'That is settled, then,' said the sibilant tones. "'Now,' "'In the matter of the loan to an English newspaper, "'you have arranged the details satisfactorily, Boris?' "'I think so, yes.' "'That is good. "'An official denial from Moscow will be forthcoming if necessary.' "'There was a pause, "'and then the clear voice of the German broke the silence. "'I am directed by Mr. Brown "'to place the summaries of the reports "'from the different unions before you. "'That of the miners is most satisfactory. "'We must hold back the railways. "'There may be trouble with the A.S.E.' For a long time there was a silence, broken only by the rustle of papers and an occasional word of explanation from the German. Then Tommy heard the light tap tap of fingers drumming on the table. And the date, my friend, said Number One. The twenty ninth. The Russian seemed to consider. That is rather soon. I know, but it was settled by the principal labor leaders, and we cannot seem to interfere too much. They must believe it to be entirely their own show. The Russian laughed softly, as though amused. "'Yes, yes,' he said. "'That is true. They must have no inkling that we are using them for their own ends. They are honest men, and that is their value to us. It is curious, but you cannot make a revolution without honest men. The instinct of the populace is infallible.' He paused, and then repeated, as though the phrase pleased him. "'Every revolution has had its honest men.' "'They are soon disposed of afterwards.' "'There was a sinister note in his voice. "'The German resumed. "'Claims must go. "'He is too far seen. "'Number 14 will see to that.' "'There was a hoarse murmur. That's all right, governor.' "'Then after a moment or two. "'But suppose I'm nabbed. "'You will have the best legal talent to defend you,' replied the German quietly. "'But in any case,' "'You will wear gloves fitted with the fingerprints of a notorious housebreaker. "'You have little to fear.' "'Oh, I ain't afraid, Governor. All for the good of the cause. "'The streets is going to run with blood, so they say.' "'He spoke with a grim relish. "'Dreams of it sometimes, I does. "'It diamonds and pearls rolling about in the gutter for anyone to pick up.' "'Tommy heard a chair shifted. The number one spoke. "'Then all is arranged. We are assured of success.' "'I think so.' But the German spoke with less than his usual confidence. Number One's voice held suddenly a dangerous quality. "'What has gone wrong with you?' "'Nothing, but—' "'But what?' "'The Labour leaders. Without them, as you say, we can do nothing. If they do not declare a general strike on the twenty-ninth, "'And why should they not?' "'As you've said, they are honest.' "'And in spite of everything we've done to discredit the government in their eyes, "'I'm not sure they haven't got a sneaking faith and belief in it. "'But I know, I know, they abuse it unceasingly. "'But on the whole, public opinion swings to the side of the government. "'They will not go against it.' "'Again the Russians' fingers drummed on the table. "'To the point, my friend, I was given to understand "'that there was a certain document in existence which assured us success.' "'That is so. "'If that document were placed before the leaders, "'the result would be immediate. "'They would publish it broadcast throughout England "'and declare for the revolution "'without a moment's hesitation. "'The government would be broken "'finally and completely.' "'Then what more do you want?' "'The document itself,' "'said the German bluntly. "'Ah, it's not in your possession. "'But you know where it is?' "'No.' Does anyone know where it is? One person, perhaps, and we are not sure of that even. And who is this person? A girl. Tommy held his breath. A girl? The Russian's voice rose contemptuously. And you have not made her speak? In Russia, we have ways of making the girl talk. This case is different, said the German sullenly. How different? He paused a moment and went on. Where is the girl right now? The girl? Yes, she is. But Tommy heard no more. A crashing blow descended on his head, and all was darkness. Thanks for joining us for chapters 7 and 8 of The Secret Adversary by Agatha Christie. Looks like Tommy's in trouble. If you're enjoying this show, please do send us a review, especially you Apple listeners, for 1001 Stories for the Road. We would appreciate that very much. Until next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.